0: That man right out of my hair. I'm gonna wash that man right out of my hair. I'm gonna wash that man right out of my hair and send him on his way. I'm gonna wave that man right out of my arms. I'm gonna wave that man right out of my arms. I'm gonna wave that man right out of my arms and send him on his way. Don't try to patch it up. Tear it up. Wash him out, dry him out. Push him out, fly him out. Cancel him. And let him go. Yay, sister. I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair. I'm going to wash.
1: Hello and welcome to Broadway Radios. This week on Broadway for Sunday, May nineteenth, two thousand and nineteen. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His play God Shows Up opened at the Actors Temple Theater on Forty Seventh Street just last week, and his columns appear at MTI Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Peter, so your play is open, God Shows Up. Um, what's that excitement like? Did you take a long rest after it, or did you continue uh-huh. on working?
2: Did he show yes. up?
3: <laughs> yes, he did. He did. <laughs> uh, Lou Liberatore uh, plays the role. He's quite fine in it, and uh, as are, by the way, uh, Christopher Sutton and uh, Leanne Hutchinson. They're, they're quite terrific. So, uh, the reviews have come out that I've seen, and uh, so far I have a lot of qualified approvals. What can <laughs> I <tell you? laughs> So, uh, that's alright. I've broken a lot of hearts in my time, so uh, under those circumstances, no hard feelings. No, um, it's, it's going pretty well, actually, and um, uh, in case you were planning to go tomorrow night, however, the Actors' Temple is having a benefit on the 20th, so no performance tomorrow night, but we'll resume on uh, saturday at eight o'clock
2: you know i don't think we somehow mentioned uh when we were re- reviewing burn this uh, i don't think any one of us happened to mention that lou uh c- of course created the role of larry and so aside from everything else i think it's really nice and sweet to have him back on stage while yeah, he, he went while through a lot this,
3: of hard times uh yeah he had, yeah uh, he had a health uh, scare yes. It's yeah, quite yeah. scary in fact, um, so he had to leave the business for a while, so it's it's nice to have him back where he belongs
2: yes absolutely i I mean I was aware of that, but I meant specifically it it's kind of you know synchronicity or
3: whatever that that he yeah, that, right. yeah. that
2: it's at the same time that burn this is re- revived,
3: yeah, in fact, we canceled the performance, so he go well, the opening of burn this ah. uh they they invited him, and certainly we wanted him to be there uh, yeah 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 so so there we go, Great.
1: That other voice that you're hearing is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at Filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. So the two of you got—actually, let's start with this one. Peter, you got down to Bedford-Stuyvesant to Mr.
3: Rogers Theater. Is that— Mr. Rogers Theater. On Rogers Street? Rogers Avenue Rogers Avenue You are pardon for not knowing where it remotely is. I mean it's very far away. Anyway, go on. <laughs> where you saw a streetcar named
1: Desire, can you take a streetcar from Manhattan to get to Mr. Rogers Theater?
3: You might be able to take a streetcar, but um you could also take the 2 and 5 train uh to uh <laughs> President Street. I had no idea where I was going and I have to say that uh it was a good 45 minutes from, um, downtown where I live. So you might say, well, why, why are you bothering? I mean, after all, you know, you, you've seen Streetcar Named Desire, uh, and this little tiny production, why are you going? Well, I got a call from my very first girlfriend who I've been in touch with uh, for all these years. And she's connected to a theater in Concord, Massachusetts, uh, a young people's theater where Chris Evans of Lobby hero fame and a few pictures too Right uh, started out So anyway she said to me look um, I think this guy is really terrific And I think you should go see him uh, His name is Russell Peck So I did some investigating um, And found out that he would be playing Blanche Dubois. And in fact if one goes To Russell Peck's website you find out That he's a gender queer actor and uses The pronoun they So um, I certainly Was interested in seeing a streetcar named Desire with a um Uh, genetically born uh, cisgender um, male uh, in the role, because for years people have talked about that. And to my knowledge, nobody has um, done it. I've never never been offered a production of it. So I thought, okay, um, for my first girlfriend's sake and for the sake of seeing something adventurous like that, let me go. Well, it turned out to be far more adventurous than I thought, far more. Now, I really thought there was a problem when it started, because um, Russell Blanche was wearing one of the 12 worst wigs I've ever seen in my life. And I couldn't believe that uh, Blanche would wear something so horrific or that the, the theater itself would settle for something so horrific. You know, is this something that um, nobody noticed? I mean, um, that includes Kevin Horrigan, the director. I couldn't believe this. Well, anyway, um, certainly mixed tech um they did a fine performance as, as Blanche Dubois but but, 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 but they took a liberty with this play that um, <laughs> I, I don't know if the Williams estate knows about this, what they did but in the final scene where the um, uh, medics are coming to take her away um, Blanche is in a bathtub and comes out completely nude and uh, there's a flash. I mean, it, it, it's full frontal nudity, but I mean, you got to be quick. If you blink, you'll miss it. But you, one does see male equipment there, and then they dress Blanche in male clothes. You see the jockey shorts. You see the jeans. All right, jeans could be unisex. I'll grant you. You see a T-shirt that could be too. But the jockey shorts and um, the genitals, and they take. Uh, and now there's no wig. And now, um Russell Peck has a completely ordinary male haircut, and without the wig, but with the jockey shots, um they take Blanche out so there's talk about in the um in the press materials about we're really um concentrating on illusion, so I guess the point of this is that Blanche really is a man, but Stella has been either honoring uh, Blanche's, whatever, Bob, whatever his name might have been, uh, uh, request to be treated as a woman. Uh, Certainly the dialogue hasn't been changed at all. There's still talk of sister and all that kind of business. And, uh, wow, I mean, is this the point that they're getting at, since they say we're stressing illusion, that indeed um, Blanche as a woman is an illusion? Uh, there's, it's quite a good production. I'm sorry that it's closing today. That um, people can't. Kind of, I wouldn't be this specific if it weren't closing today. Um, but it's it's such an interesting thing that one has to um, address the issue um, at some point. And given that it's closing, I'm addressing it now because I've never seen anything quite like it. There's um, a good deal of um, frontal uh, um, and dorsal, so so to speak, nudity in this play, <laughs> and the rape scene. The rape scene uh, between uh, Stella and uh, Stanley is quite graphic. And um, so quite graphic indeed. I've never seen anything as forceful. Uh, they certainly don't dim the lights very quickly on it. So um, so it's really uh, quite an adventure. And I'm not sorry I went at all because everybody in it was terrific. Terrific. I mean, the Stanley um, wasn't... Well, Russell's a tall guy, so as a result, um, the, um, the Stanley uh, wasn't uh, as tall. Neither was the Mitch, for that matter. But anyway, Max Carpenter was the uh, gentleman playing Stanley, and he was terrific. Um, so was Isabel Ellison as Stella Really, quite wonderful, um, and um, there was uh, a bit of dorsal nudity with her, quite a bit um, actually as well. And um, I certainly admired David J. Cork as uh, Mitch as well. So, a very accomplished production, um, but it's you know, and uh, we hear about productions taking risks. This one certainly did, and I was <laughs> just flummoxed and uh, amazed that uh, this existed at all, but I would like to know if the Williams estate did say, yeah, go ahead, that sounds interesting, or they didn't know. Uh, I have no idea, but uh, (laughs) congrats to uh, these people having the courage to think out of the box and delivering a fine production, no matter which way you looked at it.
1: Peter, maybe... Maybe they've extended since you saw it, but it's playing for another week. It's playing to May twenty fifth.
3: Ah, ah. Oh well. All right. I'm sorry. I spilled all the beans. Um. But um. But uh, I don't know. Maybe um. Maybe people, especially people who live closer to President Street, um, on the two and five train, will um, check it out. Um. It's a very small theater, and the set, by the way was not unlike the set that we had at the um, uh, St. Ann's Warehouse uh, three years ago, I think it was, when uh, it was done there. Uh, so it's a railroad flat. And so you sit on each side of the railroad flat. There, and I, I doubt there are more than 50 seats in the theater, and I bet I'm being generous. So uh, it was sold out the night I went. It was nice to see so many people there. I mean, granted, 50 is not a lot of people per se, but you know, if, if one judges it by the capacity of the house, it was nice to see every seat filled. So, um, so a very impressive endeavor in, in many ways, but um, we'll, we'll, we'll see if there's any ramifications from this one.
2: Your description of the, the production and the nudity specifically reminds me of a story I, – I think I may have told it before, but I I, th- I think it may be embarrassed repeating because – was so amusing. There was that uh, very controversial production several years ago directed by Ivo Van Hove, at the New York Theatre Workshop with Elizabeth Marvel. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. And I did not see it, alas, but <laughs> at what point apparently she had to um, strip her clothes off and, and dive into the bathtub. Uh-huh. And so uh, was not – Long after that show opened, I was at an event and Rosemary Harris was there. And I said – I got to go up to her and say, Miss Harris, you were in one of the first Broadway shows I ever saw, which was uh, Streetcar at Lincoln Center at the Beaumont, in which she played Blanche and uh, James Farentino played Stanley and Philip Bosco played Mitch. So uh, Miss Harris said – Oh, she said, did you see that production that Beth Marvel did? (laughs) And I said, well, I said, no, I I certainly read about it, but I didn't get a chance to see it. And she said, well, I'm certainly glad they didn't ask me to do that.
3: (laughs) Everybody's a critic.
2: (laughs) Oh, boy. I guess she just didn't feel comfortable stripping off her clothes and diving into a bathtub.
1: (laughs) First thing she would have had to do was unbutton her high-button shoes. Uh, (laughs) Ah, Yes. So Peter and Michael got over to the Encore's uh, series at New York City Center to see high-button shoes. Michael, why don't you get us started on high-button shoes?
2: Yes, this is a very old-style musical, uh, uh, music by Julie Stein, lyrics by Sammy Kahn book by Stephen Longstreet, whoever that is, not not one of the more famous names in musical theater, Uh, an original choreography by Jerome Robbins, Um, kind of a relic uh, and I would say largely unknown today, although uh, two numbers from the show were included in Jerome Robbins Broadway and I guess that helped to to keep it uh, in, in people's minds um, the Bathing Beauty Ballet and the song I Still Get Jealous were the two numbers in Jerome Robbins Broadway so now uh, thanks to Encores we got to see the whole thing uh, directed by John Rando, musical director Rob Berman and choreographed by Sarah Oglebbi. uh a new name to me and uh I, I happy to to see a new name also uh, she i think did a really yeoman job of recreating those two numbers with the original robin's staging choreography and the other stuff i 'm not sure uh, I think that she mostly had to invent uh the other choreography because I believe it's not it had not been preserved in any way uh, I remember they they said they had problems um you know, in putting together Jerome Robbins Broadway, because even though he was still with us at the time, he didn't remember a lot of it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they, they, they were not, uh, the steps were not preserved in lab on notation, I believe it's called. Uh, and in m- most cases there were not films of the, of the numbers in that show. So it can be, uh, uh, it, it's not always easy to recreate classic choreography, uh, but she did that for those two numbers uh, based on the Jerome Robbins Broadway uh, research and a really good job with the rest of it. And, of course, of course, the Encores Orchestra, as always, sounded just phenomenal. Uh, Rob Berman does such a great job with them. But I, I'm sorry to say uh, that this production, I think, suffered from miscasting almost completely across the board, um, including the lead, Michael Urie, one of the leads. I I think it would be easier to name the people who were well cast, and that would include Kevin Chamberlain as Mr. um, Pondue, kind of the uh, sidekick of Harrison Floyd, the Michael Urie role. And who else was well cast? Uh, I would say uh Mark oh a new face and voice Mark Keck who played Augie the uh uh the football player and Jennifer Allen as Shirley Simpkins, uh and Melinda Hull as Nancy but uh lots of lots of tremendous miscasting uh, uh, one of the worst in addition to mr. Yuri himself was was Chester Gregory as Papa Longstreet just completely completely the wrong type and style of performer for that role. And I'm sorry to say even Betsy Wolf, uh, who I really love and I know Peter does also, uh, she she was fine, but she she seemed disappointing to me because I I didn't think she had the right period sense that's necessary uh, for this type of show. Uh, She played Sarah Longstreet, mama uh, Sarah Longstreet, uh, the role originally played by Nanette Fabre. And uh, I don't know, there was just a contemporary air about, uh, Betsy's readings and her singing. And also she seemed, um, uh, like she looked a little bit too young, even though she probably is almost exactly the right age, uh, or maybe not, maybe she is a bit too young. Uh, but the, uh, so all of that worked tremendously against the show. T- to me, uh, it, it seemed like there were a lot of laughs that that were not got <laughs> uh, because the timing or the, the comedy was just was not being well done. Uh, the ensemble dancing was great and great. Uh, and as I said, the orchestra sounded fine, but but when you have major, major, major miscasting like that, it, it's obviously not not going to help a show. I think uh, I'm really sorry to say that Encore's, uh, generally speaking, seems to have devolved um, in the past couple of seasons. Over the past couple of seasons, and this was one of the one of the low points. And also, I I want to be careful here. I want and I want to sound. Absolutely sincere and not condescending or in any way. I I do think that Michael Yuri is one of the greatest comic talents that we have, and not just comic either. He is very good at dramatic acting as well. Um, but I think he needs to make some more careful choices about the roles he accepts. It, it seems like uh, my impression is that he says yes to everything. And uh, that did not work out well, in my opinion, in Tort Song. And it certainly didn't work out well in this case. So I don't know if maybe he um, should consider getting a new management team or whatever, because I think if, if too many more of these happen, it's not going to – help him and i really do think that i i thought ever since i saw him in the temperamentals that he is a spectacular talent and he was fabulous in several other things including when i saw him take over as bud frump in uh how to succeed on broadway in the last revival so um so those are my thoughts on those are my
3: very disappointed thoughts on high button shoes all right peter what'd you think Michael, I'm astonished to hear you say this because friends out there, I was sitting in front of Michael, and you had to have laughed about four dozen times. Uh, <laughs> didn't you? You were laughing constantly. I Well,
2: four dozen times? Oh, at least. Oh, God. I, I didn't. <laughs> All right, if you say so. <laughs> I thought I remember, you were having a hell of a time. You know, I thought of you uh, in a similar situation recently, because remember that horrendous production of Dames at Sea that was done some years ago by Theater 1010?
3: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, That
2: we both saw in the same performance, and uh, and you 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 said the same thing. In fact, you told me that you were ashamed of me. Oh yeah, really? All right. For for laughing that much, but I guess I would say uh, that in in those cases, I'm I'm laughing. At the material and not the delivery. Well,
3: that's fair. I, yes, I mean, yes, I, yes. You
2: know, because I know it's supposed to be funny. Okay. I, I don't know if that makes any sense.
3: All right. No, it does. I, I follow that. But anyway, anyway, um, this is not a castigation. It's just I was surprised. I expected you to rave considering I heard all that laughter. But now I understand where you're coming from. Anyway, okay. I liked it much more than you did. And I thought Michael Urie was terrific. In fact, he has to play. Well, this is a vehicle. I mean, this was really written for Phil Silvers. Yes. Um, many uh, people... Out there may not know who Phil Silvers was, but there was a time when everybody did. And uh, the backstory of, of High Button Shoes involves the fact that uh, Julie Stein and Sammy Kahn had written a show before that had closed out of town called Glad to See You. And Glad to See You, in fact, was a uh, catchphrase that, um, Phil Sivers used to use as well as Hawaii. He, he, he had a few of the, you know, we, a lot of comics have these, um, taglines and that was his. Well, anyway, um, that closed out of town, but, uh, Julie Stein and Sammy Cohn felt very bad and felt that they should write, um, a, a, a show for him again. And that's high button shoes. Now, the thing is that, um, Phil Sivers was always known as playing a con man. Uh, His TV show, Sergeant Bilgo, he was a con man. In Do Re Mi, the musical from 1960, uh, he was a con man. And uh, so here he is. He's playing a con man again. um, And uh, the the whole point of it, he's he's one of these guys who sets up little – stands in the street and tries selling lousy merchandise. And Kevin Chamberlain, uh, playing Mr. Pontu, is his sidekick who pretends to be the average person on the street who always says, I'll take two to encourage people to buy. Now, what's really unbelievable about High Button Shoes is that uh, when he meets the family um, in New Brunswick, New Jersey, I, I can't imagine there are many musicals that take place there. So, anyway, uh, when he meets the family in New Brunswick, New Jersey, Betsy Wolf, who's the the mother of the family, uh, takes to him in a way that's unbelievable, I have to say. I'm I'm amazed that that character does not see through him, um, but she doesn't, and she really wants him for her sister, who's instead interested in this football player that uh, Michael alluded to, uh, Oglethorpe is his last name, I think we call him Augie or Ogle sometimes. So, uh, so that's the story, and unfortunately, he does, um, the Phil Sober's character um, named Harrison Floyd, uh, does wind up um, taking many people in the town for a lot of money because he sells them land that turns out to be underwater. There's a wonderful joke, a wonderful joke when he's uh, telling all the people about what the town is going to be like after um, they buy the land. Uh, there's going to be this here, there's going to be a theater there, and here's there's going to be the ophthalmology clinic, which is going to be a sight for sore eyes. Good joke anyway, so um so uh, michael Yuri um had to essentially play a role that was written for somebody else specifically, and I thought he did a phenomenal job, um one of the best in the season, in fact, of channeling Phil Silvers a little, but not a lot, um not enough to um, of course, a lot of this is predicated on the fact whether or not anybody in the audience knew Phil Silvers. I imagine many did, if not most, but not everybody but but really, I thought he was nice and slick and endearing and uh, believable. So, um, so I thought he was terrific. Um, I, also, yes, it is true that I have a long history with Betsy Wolf. Uh She is, as I like to call them, my Cincinnati kids, um, because I've been masterclassing out there for the last twenty plus years, and I certainly saw her develop and um, and uh, terrific talent. I I, uh, I guess. I guess she was too young. It didn't even occur to me while watching her that she was, but I just love the fact that she got a chance to do some soft shoe and did it extraordinarily well. I've never had a chance to see, um, Betsy dance like that. And, um, I thought she was really quite wonderful in in the production numbers. I love her timing. I love her voice. Um, again, I'm sure I've said this before, but in all the years that I've been teaching out there, Aubrey Berg, um, who's been the head of the department, he just retired, um, has, there's only one time in all these years he said to me, we have an incoming freshman. i got to tell you, she's terrific. Her name is Betsy Wolf. He's never said that about anybody else. And don't forget Ashley Brown, who went to the school, uh, who's Mary Poppins, Shoshana Bean, who went to the school, who um, is currently in Waitress. I mean, etc. A lot of great people have come out of his program. And yet Betsy Wolf was the only one that he predicted greatness for from day one. And, and she's lived up to it. I mean, she's worked steadily since she's come to the city. And um, and I thought she was quite wonderful in the part. Um, is this a classic well, of course not no uh is the score good yes i think it is and i have to admit that even a schmaltzy song that um that was done early in the show between um ogle uh the um the football hero and indeed um the um the aunt that uh he wants uh that um sorry that uh Bessie Wolf's character, Mama, is the take, this is the era where people call each other Mama and Papa. It's uh, it's back in the early twentieth century. Um, Fran and um, Augie uh, sing, Can't You Just See You're In Love With Me. It's a syrupy song, and yet it hasn't left my head since uh, I saw the show on Sunday. And uh, it's not like I didn't know the score. There is um, a cast album that's been uh, in existence for a long time, only eight songs, because it was released um, in 1947 before LPs came into existence. So there were 78 RPM albums. They used to do four. uh, Four records in an album And um, so that's eight songs And so that's all there was Uh, It's available again, by the way um, Masterworks Broadway, for whom I write a column Each Tuesday Uh, I said to them, look, this is happening. You should put it out. And they said, all right, well, at least we'll make it available digitally. So if you're interested in type-out and choose what the music sounds like, um, you can certainly um, do that. But it's, again, you don't get the whole score remotely. But something is better than nothing because this is solid stuff. So, so yes, I enjoyed Kevin Chamberlain amazingly, and I always do, and uh, he was great fun. But um, I I thought it was a perfectly fine... um, uh encore's effort Uh, stunning beyond belief um unforgettable no no but i had a good time while i was there and michael i guess you could report that i laughed far (laughs) less than you did i mean you probably didn't hear much coming out of me so the irony is that they were laughing (laughs) up your head off and didn't have a good time and i wasn't laughing very much but i had a good time so there you have it
2: there were uh Uh, A few Rutgers jokes that I really laughed at, I remember. I don't know how many shows have Rutgers jokes in them, but those kind of tickled me. (laughs) Uh, uh,
3: By the way, on Stephen Longstreet, who you mentioned uh, as being obscure, which is true, but um, he wrote a book called The Sisters Like Them Handsome, and that's uh, what this is based on. Ironically enough, I I don't know exactly what happened, but uh, High Button Shoes itself was published uh, in hardcover. It, live, it lives in my house uh, as a play without the songs. Mm. Um, but um, doing some research when I was writing the article for Masterworks Broadway, it seemed to be the same dialogue we were hearing on stage. So, um, so that's a, a, a rare thing. There are other shows that have had that happen. Uh, you can get Nanny Get Your Gun script without the songs too. Um, but, uh, but it, it it So Stephen Longstreet, um, in fact. In the fly jacket of the original novel, The Sisters Like Them Handsome, which I found in a secondhand store in Nekong, New Jersey, on one happy day. Um, the flyleaf actually mentions um, this was the era of high-button shoes, and so that was that's where they got the title. Uh, he um, he put that in, and he wrote the flyleaf. Um, you know, it's not like so many times they they assign um, some sort of editor to do it. No, he wrote it. So so anyway, um, uh, that's all I know about Stephen Longstreet. He may have been a tremendously successful off- author in his day. But um, in my myopic world, I only know him for the Sisters Like Them Handsome and High Button Shoes.
1: Peter, I thought in the middle of your review of High Button Shoes, you were about to break into the Jason Robert Brown song, I Love Betsy. I like taxis. I like trains. I like Brooklyn when it rains. But I love Betsy.
3: I like walking. Uh, (laughs) uh, (laughs) Yes. You know, when they have a tribute for her, that's uh, and they will someday. That will have to be the opening number. So um, <laughs>
2: there again, though, um, you know, I was we've discussed some, some bad luck recently. She was supposed to be a Carrie in Carousel, and then she wasn't. And there was
3: another big disappointment. I don't know. Happened. Maybe that was good luck.
1: <laughs> well, no, don't forget,
4: don't forget well,
3: Lindsay, <laughs> Lindsay Mendez won the Tonys. So, I mean, yeah, you, know, you, d- d- you d- have d- to think, you know, if I had done that show, would I have gotten the Tony? You know, you have to wonder. Yeah. So, yeah. So. So, and Depends I on, I, yeah. I thought I heard, and I may be wrong, but I thought I heard it was her decision not to do carousel,
1: yeah, there was uh no that's a not what of, I heard but of, okay yeah fine.
3: <laughs> I, never, I never say what I say is true, I only tell you what I hear, so yeah. uh okay, fine, all right, frankly, I'd rather that be the situation, but that's another story. she was uh, Peter, did you get
2: to see Betsy when she was in waitress? no, yeah, yeah no. I would like great. to see that.
1: All right. So uh, next up, Peter, you got over to the York Theatre Company to see uh, Enter Laughing, the musical. So tell us about that.
3: Well, you know, this is the damnest thing, because way back in the 70s, when uh, so long, 174th Street opened on Broadway. No, I did not see it because it ran, I think, two weeks. Um, but uh, Robert Morse played the role of uh, David Kollwitz, who wants to be an actor. His parents want him to be a druggist. Now, in those days, the show opened with um, him about to get an award. Um, and that takes him musing back on his um days when he was just starting out and thinking he wanted to be an actor while his parents wanted him to be a druggist. So, um, so because Robert Morse was already 45 years old, that's why they did this framing device so that, um, he wouldn't look uh, terribly old, but by all accounts, he he did look terribly old and and, and playing the young David Collowitz just didn't work at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, what also was a big um, problem, um, at the end of the show, um, he gets the award. We see him accept the award as pharmacist of the year. And so, you know, that's a hard thing to do because essentially you're saying to an audience, if you have dreams, they won't necessarily come true. And musical theater is all about dreams coming through, uh, coming true. So so the show was a big disappointment. Also, the score is very lackluster. Um, in the opening song, he envisions uh, his success. Uh, the people will say he's David Karlowitz, the actor. He's David Kollwitz, the actor. He's David Kollwitz, the actor. He's David Kollwitz, the star. And that's the level of the lyric writing in this show. I mean, it's amazing to me that nobody thought that um, what he should be doing is thinking of names that he could have, um, that he could change to. You know, he, he's David Kollwitz, the actor. He's David Chillingsworth the actor. He's David Collingsworth, the actor, you know, et cetera. You know, I mean, that, that would make the number much more interesting. And you really get tired of hearing those same lines repeated over and over. However, um, some years ago, uh, the York Theatre Company decided to do um, So Long 174th Street and changing it to Enter Laughing. Why that title? Well, because that's the play on which um, the uh, musical is based. And um, it was originally a novel by Kyle Reiner and essentially, I imagine, autobiographical um, when he was just starting out. And um, Joe Stein adapted in 63. It ran a year. Playing David at that time was Alan Arkin just starting out. And uh, certainly... Uh, it jump-started his career, and um, Kyle Reinan was extraordinarily pleased with him and put him into a movie um, that he was involved with called uh, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. Uh, and that was really the jump-start of his Hollywood career. And so, so uh, Alan Arkin owns it all to enter laughing. So this is a great part for an actor just starting out, and that's one of the reasons Robert Morse wasn't so hot in it, as we're told. I mean, again, I'm not an eyewitness to that. But some years ago when the York Theatre did this, uh, revived it, and dropped uh, Joe Stein, I imagine, made the decision he was still alive then, and dropped the framing device of and and succoring the audience into believing that David Collwoods was about to get an Oscar or a Tony or something like that. Um, so uh, a, a young actor named Josh Grizzetti really um, made his reputation here and started getting work um, as a result of the show, and I think it's going to happen again for Chris Swan. Now, um, people may have noticed my voice is a little huskier than usual because I'm fighting a terrible cold. And last night when I saw started laughing, I was coughing uncontrollably because I was laughing so hard. Uh, this Chris one is really magnificent in the role and it's wonderful to see him we gave josh grisetti a theater world award for his performance um and i have a feeling even though the the theater world awards for next year are virtually a full year away that uh, chris Juan is certainly going to be a contender and i'm certainly going to remember him because i think he is truly hilarious in the part and yet believable too so what's this about well he finds out that they're auditioning actors um, at a small theater. His friend encourages him to go, and he goes, and he's truly terrible, um, truly terrible. And um, Mr. Marlowe, who runs the theater, who's an alcoholic, and you really get the impression this is before off-off-Broadway, off, bro- off, off Broadway, that this is really off-off-off-off-Broadway, that um, they're really, they don't sell tickets, they pass a plate and hope for the best, you know, the people contribute, that type of thing. And um, But even by these standards... Ah, uh, David is terrible. And so there is much involving how bad he is. and um, and also he has to fight his mother and father, who have no interest in his becoming an actor, and um, definitely want him to pursue this. Pharmacy. They're even going to borrow money from um, uh, a relative to to make it happen. He and he is fighting it tooth and nail. He doesn't want that to happen. So, um, so the adventures that he has during uh, this period in his life are detailed very very well in Joe Stein's script. Now, you know the thing is, as hilarious as everything is, the thing is that what really works on stage at the York Theater is Joe Stein's script. The songs aren't that hot. Um, the The rhymes aren't that interesting. Um, they're rather obvious. Um, more to the point, um, the melodies are very old world Broadway, but in a very sticky sense. Um, it's almost like parodies of Jerry Herman almost. But there is that type of Jerry Herman feeling, but not nearly as good now they were written by Stan Daniels, who really had a career writing for mary tyler moore uh and uh, but he always apparently wanted to do a broadway musical and uh and he did um but uh but his work um is is not that good um Michael wants to talk about an issue that um that certainly, um, needs to be addressed. So I'll let him take that, uh, when he talks about it and we'll both discuss it, but he brought it up before we started the show. So I want him to deal with it. And that is my goal.
2: Well, I can only start to talk about it because I haven't seen the show, but I have heard, uh, there is a, there is a song in the show and the, uh, title as written, I believe is undressing girls with my eyes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it is now apparently romancing girls with my eyes, I guess, for the Me Too era. And I just think that maybe we're getting a little ridiculous.
3: Well, uh, the, the problem is that that title doesn't really mean anything. Uh, how do you romance with your eyes? Uh, well, I guess you can give – I'll take that back. I guess you can give looks that looks at that. Mm. so So um, – but – Ironically enough, in the original production, I'm told that uh, when he goes, he he delivers um, packages for his boss and uh, he goes to an office. And what happened in the original production after he sang Undressing Girls With My Eyes, that literally there was a costume uh, rigged so that uh, while the secretary was there saying, oh, David, how are you? Kaboom, the front of her dress was removed um, through <laughs> some sort of technical thing. And you actually saw her breasts, you know. So, um, so that, of course, um, wasn't in the show when uh, the York did it, um, possibly because they – couldn't get the dress to, um, to, in their, uh, budget, but nevertheless, yeah, undressing dressing girls with my eyes is really who David is. And it's not a case of romancing and it does undercut what's going on. And I was very surprised to see the change in the lyric, very surprised indeed. Um, and, uh, but I didn't realize you hadn't seen the show, Michael, I, I that you had only heard about this. So yeah, anyway, yeah. um, anyway, I, I think this is a very worthwhile endeavor for people to go to. And, um, my My girlfriend Linda, who has um, very little tolerance with um, second rate musicals um, and she she wanted to go um, and I was surprised. And I, uh, Linda's famous for walking out of things that insult her intelligence, and I really <laughs> expected her to leave at the end of Act One. I thought there was not a chance in the world that she would stay. And um, you couldn't budge her out of her seat. I mean, she really uh, was taken with the property. But again, I really do believe the power of um, the, uh, the show is Joe Stein's um, original play. Um, which is basically on stage. Um, though I do miss one line, and I'll tell you what it is. I mean, you see David perform in the show, and he is truly terrible, terrible. In the original production, which I did see, in the original production you actually saw the parents in seats um, on stage. I mean, they weren't on stage, of course, literally, but, I mean, they were on the, the stage of the Wilbur Theater in Boston, so uh, we could see their reaction. And finally, at one point, after David has humiliated himself Tremendously, um, the father turns to the mother and says, "What do you think?" And she says, "He's the best one." And I think that's so wonderful. You know, <laughs> <that's>, you know, <laughs> you know, a, a mother's love, you know, and comes through even there. Speaking of mothers, Allison Fra- frazier plays her, and uh, and she's quite good in the part. Robert Picardo is quite good as the father too. Ray dematis is wonderful as um, he always is. As um, as the, uh, Mr. Foreman, the, um, the, uh, David's employer and, uh, Farrah Alvin's quite wonderful as well as the actress, uh, against whom David plays and David Schram um, is, uh, Mr. Marlowe and he has all the bluster that, uh, one could imagine. I would tell you that the audience last night was over the moon for this show. I mean, um, over the moon, over Jupiter, op- over over Pluto, um, in another galaxy. Uh, this truly was one of the great audience-pleasing nights that I've had in a long, 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 long time. And um, I really do believe that um, I might have um, coughed a great deal anyway uh, from choked laughter, even if I didn't have this terrible cold.
2: I have uh, two questions. I'm, I'm not sure I understood correctly. Are you saying that there were bare breasts in the original Broadway
3: production? I think so. I think so. Doesn't I'm, that sound highly unlikely? I understand that, but I do think that's what happened. I, I'm going to rely that maybe some of our readers were there for the – I think it was 16 performances. I could be wrong about that too. That's worth checking. Mm. But, um, but nevertheless, um, I believe that's what I heard at the time.
2: And uh my second question is I I also I'm not sure I understand what was it that made you convinced that Linda would probably walk
3: out because I think the score is really um second ra- third the score ra- yeah um i she she doesn't really um respond to um broadway scores that um, aren't top notch and I see. um and um this one struck me as uh one that uh, really is um quite second rate so um so I re- that's why I really thought there was no chance in the world that she was going to be there, but mm. she was having a hell of a time.
1: All right. So, uh, maybe she was having a hell of a time because there was a lot of happy talk on stage there.
3: Was there yeah. Michael?
1: <laughs> so Michael got over to the signature center to see the new group's production of happy talk. So Michael, tell us about that.
2: This is a new play by Jesse Eisenberg, um, who is also known as a film star, uh, and I, it's a third of his plays that I've seen. Um, the previous two that I've seen were, call, were titled uh, The Revisionist and that had Vanessa Redgrave in it in addition to – Mr Eisenberg himself and the spoils uh in which Mr Eisenberg had a major role uh in addition to writing it this is the first of his plays i've seen that he has not been in uh, obviously as a movie star um, the it's obvious why producers uh, might want to have him in the cast uh of his place for marquee value and it's certainly arguable uh that his place would not have been produced uh if he was not who he is uh but i guess this is a um Uh, you know, a a step forward for him in terms of not having to be in this one to get it produced. Um, And I basically felt about this play the same way that I felt about the other two that I saw. I I think they both uh, show a lot of talent, but at some point uh, in each one of them, the writing just kind of goes off the rails. Uh, this play, Happy Talk, uh, I felt was really quite good for about two-thirds of its length. Uh, and then that's when it went off track. Uh, let me read the description here uh, that they provide because it's so succinct. Um, it's uh, We're set in New Jersey again. A lot of New Jersey stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh this uh, this week. Uh, Lorraine uh, is the central character, played by Susan Sarandon, uh, and Lorraine is a saint of the suburbs. On top of trying to save her dying mother, miserable husband, and estranged daughter, she's starring as Bloody Mary in the Jewish Community Center production of South Pacific. When her mother's home aide, Serbian immigrant Ljuba, Marin, Ireland, asks for help finding a husband uh, in order to get a green card, Lorraine takes on her most challenging role to date matchmaker in jesse eisenberg's hysterical and devastating play happy talk he reveals the absurd absurd lengths people go to to save themselves in the name of saving others uh and by the way it says happy talk is the new title for this play formerly named yeah sister um has have either of you guys uh read the background on that Mm -mm. No. Well, I'm just wondering if maybe originally it was about uh, not a community theater production of South Pacific, but maybe The Sound of Music? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Because what what sure, would sure. Yes, yeah, Sister have to do with um, South self- yeah, Pacific? Yeah. Oh, well, actually, I'm sorry. Yeah, sister. I'm yes, yeah, Sister. Yes, Yes, Sister is a brief yeah. interjection yeah. in the song. I'm going to watch that man right him right out.
0: out, fly him out, him. Mm-hmm.
2: So maybe that's it. And I, I don't know why you, you were thinking of as a nun. Well, I was the yes. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, but I, I'm saying, I, I don't know why the title changed. although sure. actually happy talk, I think is a better title because sure. when you see what's happening here, that the, the thing is this woman, um, you know, is coming across as like very, very kind of charming in her suburban way and uh, very up and uh, very gregarious. But, it turns out that she has a horrendous relationship with her daughter, who doesn't turn up until well into the play, and that actually is the the point um, in the play where I thought it really started to kind of go off the rails because that daughter, uh, it's it's not a, it's certainly not a fault of the actress, uh, Tedra Millen, who plays Jenny. But the character I thought was written as so over-the-top horrible and and so, so, so hateful to her mother that it it just really b- brought me out of the whole proceedings. Now, it, it turns out we find out that some pretty bad things happen, and that's why she's so horrendous and hateful. But still, I, I thought it, it was not handled well because we, we suddenly see this... Harpy uh, come in and we don't understand exactly what's happening. Um, so I, uh, I really liked a lot about it. Oh, and here's an interesting thing. I thought that Susan Sarandon, um, who has not been on stage for quite some time, as far as I know, uh, did a really excellent job in the role. And I, I still think that, but in retrospect, a, a friend mentioned something that she, she was somewhat miscast in that it seems like that this is written uh, as if she should be a, a obviously Jewish matron, uh, you know, having the nerve to play the role of Bloody Mary in South Pacific. And um, it, it seemed like it would have been even better and funnier if someone like Linda Lavin or perhaps Tova Feltcher was in the role. Um, uh, Daniel Oreskes, one of my favorite actors, uh, plays uh, – you uh, plays um, – the husband Bill, and he uh, seemed more well cast in terms of that and, see, and seeming more like this Jewish suburban guy uh, so that that 's just a, a little point that uh, that I noticed uh, in retrospect um, what uh, oh here here 's a funny thing uh, we hear several uh, excerpts from the score of South Pacific during the play uh, between scenes um, and uh, although they use. The original cast recording with Mary Martin and Ezio Pinza for the twin soliloquies, um, for the other three or four excerpts that we hear, including I'm going to watch that right out of my hair, uh, they use this film soundtrack. And I wonder why that decision was made. I mean, why not at least be consistent? If you want to use the movie soundtrack because you like it better or whatever, then use it for everything. Um I didn't get that at all. Uh, and also since we're talking about theater here uh, uh, rather than film, I, I don't know why they didn't just use the uh, tracks from the original cast for, for everything that, that we heard. Um, I, it, it briefly occurred to me that it might possibly be a licensing issue, but there was one track from the original cast recording. And also, Peter, I know it's a very convoluted situation now, but aren't basically all of the, the old RCA and Columbia catalogs now owned by the same entity
3: well at least uh, the cast albums are uh, all with masterworks broadway that's all i know so everything that was on rca and everything that was on columbia are definitely um under the sony uh banner uh so that's all i know
2: right that's what i thought so we don't know for sure if the rca film soundtrack of south pacific is also sony masterworks
3: well i will say that um on the website it's not available um oh. which, which surprises me. I there may be another website, but I mean on, on the site where I write every Tuesday, there's um there are very few soundtracks. There are some by Bye Birdie is there, but West Side Story isn't, which really surprises me. But anyway, that's the way of the lay of the land at the moment.
2: Well anyway, um so that was interesting. I I mean I don't know how much of a musical theater fan Jesse Eisenberg is but uh oh, one of the other um Uh, excerpts that we heard was Bally High, but again, from the film soundtrack. So once again, Juanita Hall is disrespected. (laughs)
3: Juanita Ah, Hall
2: created the role of Bloody Mary on stage, and as you can hear on that beautiful original cast recording of South Pacific, she sings uh, the songs just perfectly and very beautifully. But for some godforsaken reason, when the film was made, Richard Rodgers or whoever decided that she was going to be dubbed by, Bu- by uh, excuse me Muriel Smith, um, who had actually played the role in the original London production and also was famous for having created the role of Carmen Jones. Uh, so uh, to this day, people can't understand why that – ridiculous, horrendous decision was made because um, in the film, Muriel Smith sings those songs with a very smooth, almost operatic quality that is totally wrong for this uneducated, Polynesian native. Uh, so that's that, you know, we don't know why that happened. And now, uh, I don't know why, <laughs> why Jesse Eisenberg or whoever decided that we should hear that track rather than Juanita Hall's track in this play. Also, there's a, a little mistake in it that proves, uh, that maybe Jesse is not that big a mu- musical theater fan because at one point, um, Uh, Susan Sarandon's character makes reference to the fact of, um, you know, she's playing Bloody Mary in this community theater production, and she talks about how uh, I'm on stage playing the clown for 45 minutes, and then I have to, you know, completely um, change the perception of the audience by singing that beautiful song, Valley High. Well, that's just not true uh bloody mary's only on stage for about 10 maybe 15 minutes tops before she sings ballet high so so uh you could go back and fix that jesse Mm -hmm. (laughs) and um anyway uh as i say i really 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 enjoyed this play for the first two thirds and then i thought it kind of went off the rails uh for what it's worth the friend that i brought loved it so much that he thinks he's going to go back and bring his mother, who's going to be in town. Uh, So so I'll add those two reactions together, and you can uh, maybe think about whether you would like to go see this. Uh, Directed by Scott Elliott, (laughs) or the new group at the Pershing Square Signature Center.
1: All right. So that is Happy Talk playing through June 16th. Uh, Peter. You uh, jumped into the Felicia Mobile and headed to the Bucks County Playhouse, where you saw Dial M for Murder. So tell us about that.
3: Well, yes, there was a time, of course, when Summerstock Theaters always did a thriller. Uh, Of course, thrillers aren't being written as much as they used to be. And um, the producers at the Bucks County Theater, uh, specifically for this production, Robin Goodman Alice Alexander Frazier, they run the theater, but Josh Fiedler and Sharon Carr, too, decided that dial for Murder was worth reviving. Uh, One thought that occurred to me as I was watching it, uh, I loved the movie of this, um, and I've never seen it on stage, so I love the movie, and it's an Alfred Hitchcock movie. But when it was released to the theaters um, back in 1954, that was in the middle of the uh, 3-D craze. And so as a result, it was filmed in 3-D. Uh, I didn't see it then, but um, it occurred to me that what we have now is another 3D version of uh, Dial Amphiberda because it's on stage, and so there are three dimensions to the stage. Uh, it's a good production. It's not a great one, but it's a good production. It's good enough. Mike Donahue um, has uh, directed, and he's done very well by. Um, well, let's tell, talk about the plot. So, um, what's happened is that um, Margot. Margot Wendis is married to Tony Wendis. However, she's been having an affair for a long time with um, Max Halliday. Now, the thing is that she's had this affair because her husband, Tony, was very distant. He was a tennis star. And Frederick Knott, the writer, was smart to have him be a tennis star who has had to retire because he's just too old to, to be an effective tennis player anymore. So, you know, that does depress a guy. Depresses anybody who who was certainly uh, in the limelight and now no longer is. So he took it out on her, apparently. And so she started this affair with Max, who, by the way, writes thrillers. That's what he does for a living. And it's so much fun to hear him at the beginning of the play talking about how difficult it is to write for television 52 times a week. a year, sorry. And and you'd think, you know, television was a new medium then, 52, when the play was originally produced. So, um, but... In the last year, Tony has really become a nice husband. And so she's breaking off the affair with Max because he's just been so attentive and all her problems with him have disappeared. Well, uh, what really has happened is Tony discovered the affair. There's a very effective line when he talks about, I knew something was going on from the phone calls that ended abruptly when I walked into the room. So he started suspecting that she was having an affair and he didn't say anything. But he really did a lot of detective work and found out a lot about what was going on. And so now he is going to hire a guy uh, who he knew from college, a guy who was, uh, had a shady past, and uh, he's hiring him to uh, kill her. Well, it doesn't work out as well as he had hoped. And, and one of the great ironies is that, of course, she's got to stay home for her to be killed. And he makes a suggestion of what she should do while she's staying home. And if he hadn't made that suggestion, the the crime would have happened perfectly. But unfortunately, one of the things connected with what he said, why don't you spend your time doing blah, 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 turned out to be uh, what what did the plan in. So. So anyway, now uh, he has to really uh, backtrack when it doesn't go as well as he expected. and um, it, it, But he does find a way to make it seem as if his wife um, was really responsible for the crime herself, that she killed the guy who uh, came in to kill her because he was blackmailing her. Uh, and saying that he was going to tell about the affair. So it all gets very convoluted, but never convoluted enough that you can't follow it. And what was really nice is hearing the audience bubble in anticipation when they see, oh, I see what's going to happen here. Oh, that's what's going to happen. And what's really nice, and ironically enough, we're talking about a tennis player, and the play is almost a tennis match in the sense that At one point you say, oh, wow, yes, that's very convincing. He's going to get away with it. He's got the answers. And then, oh, wait a minute. Oh, but the inspector who comes in, uh, who makes a point of saying, you know, people think all of us inspectors are bumbling and we don't know what's going on, but we're smarter than you think, um, comes up with a good rebuttal. And Frederick Nod was really expert at this type of thing. He's more famous perhaps these days for having written Wait Until Dark. Um, He didn't write many plays. And I remember when he died, his obituary in the New York Times stated he hated writing. It was just such a labor for him. Well, you'd never know it from these plays because they seem so effortlessly wonderful um, because he really had the ability to see all sides of a story that he could really tell um, (laughs) what needed to be said at every moment. And if, if you... If you thought you were getting away with something, he would come up with a line saying, no, that doesn't work that way. Oh, yes, you're right, it doesn't. And then the other person has to come up with another excuse. So everybody has to be on the toes. And uh, there's a lot of uh, wonderful dialogue um, where you say, oh, he just painted himself into a corner. And then, no, he gets himself out. But then there's another corner in which he's painted. I mean, so on and so forth. So it really keeps the suspense going in whether or not this guy is going to get away with it and for the longest time it looks like he's going to so all right um ray moland played it in the movie and if you know ray moland uh the oscar winner for the last weekend um he was very urbane uh very high-toned what we have here uh thanks to um an actor named jd taylor uh, is um, not somebody of that scope at all. He's rather cocky and um, really believes he has all the answers. Now, to a degree, this works because you want to see him taken down a peg. I mean, we're not supposed to be on the murderer's side. I mean, of course, you know, adultery is not a nice thing and um, she shouldn't have started the affair. You know, Surreptitiously, if she was that unhappy, maybe they should have sat down, and had a talk or maybe a divorce or something. But anyway, um, but... You, two wrongs don't make a right. Needless to say, and having him kill her is, you know, not the answer. But he's smarmy in a way that uh, Ray Land never is, and he's um, so sure of himself in a way that Ray Land never portrays. Raymond Ray Land is character the way he plays the part. He is sure of himself, but he doesn't laud it all over you. So that's a little excessive. Otherwise, the cast is terrific, and I really thought that um, Olivia Gilead, as uh, Margot, really had great style. And, of course, she wears these uh, elaborate gowns while she's in the house, you know, the June Cleavery-type things, um, which, of course, women did in the 50s. So um, I very much admired um, uh, Clifton Duncan, who played Max. Uh, Terrific performance, and... Because he's a thriller writer, remember, uh, he has a lot of questions that come up that try to trip Tony up. And again, Tony keeps coming up with good answers. He really is um, good on his feet. And uh, and even when he sits, for that matter, he really has the answers. So... Um, so uh, it's 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 great fun to be in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, at this theater that was once a dump. Uh, well, once, of course, it was a great theater during the days of uh, you know, when Oscar Hammerstein lived in the area and Judge S. Kaufman, and they all had the places there. Um, of course, it was a greatly esteemed theater, but then fell on hard oh times. Did yeah. you work there? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I understand it was really um, a terrible facility at that point. Yeah, I never, I never saw it in those days. But um, it's been lovely, uh, refurbished in beautiful fashion, and it's just nice that it still exists and um, and that it seems to be flourishing again, which is uh, quite fine. Um, But uh, anyway, the worst days are over for the Bucks County Playhouse, and it's really nice that um, in addition to doing shows like Mamma Mia, which they will be doing this season, that they uh, decided, okay, let's get a vintage thriller in here. And, um, and and see what happens. And so, um, while it isn't a perfect production, any more than the murder was a perfect crime, um, it certainly is uh, well worth seeing. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a charming town, that New Hope, Pennsylvania. Lots of nice shops, lots of nice restaurants, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, you know, all those greats used to get out of the city during the summer. Maybe you should, too.
1: Okay, yeah. So, uh, Michael... Are you busy tonight?
2: Yes, I'm going to the Cheetah Rivera Awards. Formerly the Esther Awards, now the Cheetah Rivera Awards, named after one of our most beloved performers. And uh, it's uh, they're back at the Skirball Center at NYU tonight. They had, uh, I think it was last year that they. Uh, tried doing it in a Broadway theater, and I I think maybe that didn't work out so well. But um, I think this will be better in terms of the intimacy. And I had to buy a ticket, did not get a comp, but I wanted to go because it sounds like it's going to be quite something. Uh, Let's see, the presenters who have been announced for this evening include Cheetah herself, Andy Blankenbuehler, Camille A. Brown, Ariana DeBose, Luanne DeLessips, Mikayla Diamond, Damon J. Gillespie, Savion Glover, Mary Lou Henner, Brian Stokes Mitchell, Tyler Peck, Leroy Reams, Michael Riedel, Ethan Slater, Mary Testa, and Richard Thomas. And, uh, performances we have been promised by the, by the Radio City Rockettes, uh, and as well as the cast of Ain't Too Proud, Kiss Me Kate, The Prom, Smokey Joe's Cafe, and then it says a few surprises. Um, we'll see what that turns out to be because one of the, uh, people getting an award is Cher, uh, uh, as one of the producers of the Cher show, along with Jeffrey Seller and Flodi Suarez. um, Let's see. Uh, Graziella Daniele will receive the third annual Lifetime Achievement Award. And uh, George C. Wolf will be presented with the SDC Director Award for exemplary collaboration with choreographers on Broadway. And uh, Carol Palmgarten will receive the Vanguard Award for her outstanding contribution to the international dance community, Uh, having founded steps on broadway dance studio 40 years ago and the evening will be hosted by ann reinking and ben vereen so maybe we can maybe i can go uh you know up to them and ask them what they think of their the way they're being portrayed Ah, right in in flossy Verdon, (laughs) or maybe not maybe not (laughs) (laughs)
1: that sounds like it's going to be a wonderful evening yeah so let's talk about it again uh uh, next week, after yes. you can report back and let us know how that was, will do so. Uh, this is uh, the month of awards. Well, it's actually not the month, the, it's the pre month of awards, right? Yeah, the so month it, of nomination, the month of nominations, and uh, June is the month of awards. Uh, Peter, you guys found a theater for the Theater World Awards, right?
3: Yeah, the Neil Simon. Um, we're going to be there on June 3rd, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing our winners and our presenters. And um, so 7 o'clock at the uh, Neil Simon Theater on June 3rd, Monday, June 3rd. And uh, if any of our listeners want to attend, um, do email me at P-F-I-L-I-C-H-I-A at AOL. And uh, we'll see if we can fit you in. Great. Uh,
1: and we also uh, have been – our our email boxes have been overflowing with uh, lots of announcements from various different awards. And, Michael, you had a take on some of this award season that you wanted to share with us.
2: Well, yes, I um... – I I was thinking a lot about it because I have I guess very mixed but mostly negative feelings about these audience choice awards that various uh, websites have and I don't know what you know I, I wanted to get your guys perspective on it because I, I I think maybe uh, it's not exactly the same way that I look at it I I just think that because there is as far as I know. No oversight whatsoever in terms of the voting i 'm just not sure you know if they have any worth at all these awards
1: well i mean it's it 's somewhat of a popularity contest uh, certainly um, but uh, you know insofar as having no oversight i guess uh, I guess it really depends upon how much um, worth we put into these things. I know that. Uh, from, you know, from my perspective and in talking with the other folks at the other major websites, whether it be Rob over Broadway World or Paul over Broadway dot com and uh, mm. the folks over Playbill, um, the, you know, most of our Internet traffic comes in these three months, you know, uh, a- April, uh, May and June. Yes, yes. Uh, and that that translates to dollars, and this is what keeps these sites alive. And uh, you know, especially uh, uh, the award season is where most of the audience is engaged, and they want to participate in some way. I mean, the the Tony Awards have always been hot and cold, as insofar as um, you know the participation of the Broadway websites. Uh, you know, they they seem to suck up to the major media who ignores them 11 months, 11 and a half months out of the yeah, year. Yeah, that's true. You know, uh, all the television shows and all the major magazines and things like this get all the first dibs on yes. the Tony Awards. Uh, and and having been in the Tony Awards press room for, you know, more than 10 years or, uh, or so, I can't tell you how many times we get into the room and... You know, when you are uh, brought to the Tony Ward's press room, whether it be in the photo line, or in the red carpet line, or in the in the question and answer interview room, or things like that, um, when you get uh, approval to go into these rooms, each station will have the name of your outlet there. Uh, and so you can walk in. You'll see Broadway.com, You'll see BroadwayWorld.com, dot com. You'll see NBC News. You'll see Variety. You'll see uh, Vanity Fair, and all the other major outlets and things like that. And you see who doesn't. And you'll see who does not show up for these things. And so any, anyway, I, I'm just saying that I, I think that a lot of these websites have created their own. Uh, their own awards to support their readers because the Tony Awards is hot and cold. You can't make a plan around the Tony Awards because they're so. Uh, you don't want to call them a star effer, but they they are. They are. You know. <laughs> I, well, I, I understand all of that and and
2: uh, agree with all of that. But I, I, I if unless I misunderstand, that as I said, there is like no oversight whatsoever, and. Uh, there is no way that you need to prove that you've even seen a show that you vote for in these audience choice awards. And I believe I'm not sure about this, but I think maybe you can also vote multiple times. So I'm not sure, you know, where that leaves us. Uh, I realize that none of the awards are 100 percent pure. I I'm sure we all heard about abuses uh, with the Tonys, uh, at least in the past, where. Some Tony voters would actually give or sell their tickets to other people, uh, but I have heard that there has been a major, serious crackdown on that in recent years. I don't know if you guys yeah. have heard yeah. that they have to sign in and they have to uh, just really prove that they are the ones seeing the show. Um, I'm a, uh, you know, I'm a Drama Desk voter, and you uh, you have an honor system basically as to not voting in categories where you haven't seen. All of the nominees, so that you know it is an honor system. Uh, so that's, I guess, maybe not a hundred percent pure either. But it just seems that the the margin for abuse in the in the audience choice awards is far, far, far greater. And I, I don't know. I mean, well, you know, part of it is my my personal taste, but one of the shows that won a, a that I, I that I read just won a major award in one of them. Uh, And I actually don't remember which which awards it was, but was Pretty Woman. And I don't know, to me, anything that allows that to happen is probably (laughs) probably a seriously flawed system.
3: Well, uh, you know, I'm going to quote Robert Morse. Robert Morse is coming up a lot today, isn't he? Um, In how to succeed in business, um, because at one point in one song called Been a Long Day, he says, well, really, what's the harm? So that's the way I feel about these awards. Uh, It's I think it's certainly worthwhile to hear what the public thinks and um there are different standards that um, but the point is that if it does indicate that the people like pretty woman that means there are people who do like pretty women and would like pretty woman and if that sells tickets to people who will enjoy pretty woman well really what's the harm so um I, I think it's um, perfectly fine for the public to have its uh, opinions voiced, and uh, I don't like the idea uh, that, of course, that you, as you say, if they can vote multiple times. I don't know if that's the case. If that's the case, that should be worked on. I imagine it isn't the case, by the way. That's my guess. They
2: um, can vote mul- – whether or not they can vote multiple times, and I said I'm not sure, but they we know they can vote without actually having seen something. So I think I would say that it's not really even inaccurate. accurate – uh depiction of what the public uh feels as a consensus so that's another thing on top of it and oh and one more thing i wanted to add some of the awards um uh one of the sites at least has awards for like cabaret uh, and things like that and since there are uh very few of those uh i have seen um Some people who have real talent trumpet the fact that they have received audience choice awards for their cabaret show, uh, um, opposite people who basically have very little talent. Uh, And uh, so I think that cheapens that award uh, and – And I want to say to the people with talent, um, I'm not sure if you really want to trumpet this, but, uh, you know, on paper, I guess it still looks good to them. And so that's why they do it.
1: Well, I think that uh, as we saw in in 2016, uh, online services are very tough to manage, you know, if the Russians can hack an American election. (laughs) You know, the least of our worries are what happens with Broadway audience choice (laughs) voting. Certainly there's, you know, there's no way to validate, um, as you mentioned, if they've actually seen the thing and creating multiple accounts on these websites are... Uh, is very easy to do, and and in fact, some of these sites um, uh, not that not that I know the ins and outs of the Broadway voting sites, but lots of online sites that do these type of voting things allow you to vote once per day. Uh, so you just keep come back every day and vote for them over and over. Right. So yeah, I mean, it, it, it's really hard to uh, to validate these things. And as I said, it's a popularity contest and. And uh, popular is, uh, huh. uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. where's the uh, – Except it's the, not even
2: a pure popularity contest because there are people who are more aggressive in just like pushing oh, their, oh, their no. specific agendas. And if they are able to vote more than once and also without seeing – I mean there's probably not too much of that because – why would someone vote you know, without having seen something?
3: All uh, right. I, but- I knew somebody who worked for uh, one of the three major companies. I'm going to be very vague about this because I don't want to out the person. I'm <laughs> talking about the Schubert's, the Nederlanders, Jude Jampson. He worked for one of those companies. And when he got his Tony ballot, he voted for shows that were simply in that company's oh, theater. Yeah. That was it. Mm-hmm. That was yeah. it. No other
2: all right, criteria. So, so as I said, not, none of the awards are pure, and mm-hmm. uh, abuses are possible everywhere. So I do take all that into account, and I'm glad you all pointed that out.
1: All right, Dog Bites Man, News at 11. Uh (laughs) All right. So before we wrap up for the day, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to an Apple Podcasts. There are many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher. Google Play. Also, this uh, new Podcasts by Google um, is also, I I checked it out. Uh, You can search for This Week on Broadway in Google on a web browser, and you'll be able to play it right from the web browser. And I checked it out. They've got like thousands of listings for Broadway Radio. So it seems like they've got all of our shows, although I can't validate that. 100%. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and me can be found at BroadwayRadio.com in the show notes, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia?
3: Yeah, the question was, a person for whom a Broadway theater is named was born on the street that's specifically mentioned in a 90s stage musical. It played a theater named for a much more famous person. Who are the people for whom the theaters are named? What's the name of the street which is mentioned in the show and in the song? That you should name too. Well, this happened uh, because I was in St. Louis and uh, they have a Walk of Fame. And um, on the Walk of Fame was a star for Al Hirschfeld. And um, so I took a picture of it and um, I revisited the picture a couple of weeks ago and I saw that he was born on Kensington Avenue which, of course, is mentioned in the Mm. song The Boy Next Door in Meet Me in St. Louis, which played the Gershwin Theater, so he's the more famous person. Um, So that was the answer. Uh, Not even Tony Janicki got this one, so uh, nobody did. So maybe I'll be a little more um, easy this week with this question. When this musical got its off-Broadway recording, this song was the 16th cut on the cast album. But when the show moved to Broadway... This song became the show's opening number. What's the song and what's the show?
1: All right. So if you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.